Welcome everyone. It's fantastic to see you all here. My name is Omid Tafikian. I, uh, I'm a lecturer in uh, the Writing Hub here. I lecture in uh, uh, rhetoric and uh, composition, but I'm also, uh, I also collaborate quite a lot with uh, the uh, Department of um, Arabic Language and Cultures and with uh, the Religion, State and Society uh, Research Network. So it's a privilege to um, chair this uh, seminar today. It's uh, a Sydney Ideas event, uh, and we're really grateful to Sydney Ideas for supporting one of our events once again. It, the name is The Australian Mosque, Locality, Gender and Spirituality. Can I just begin by um, acknowledging the traditional owners of the land, the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation, as we inquire into traditions of being, knowing and doing, we should never forget that um, being, knowing and doing has been investigated and engaged with here for tens of thousands of years. So I thank them for the opportunity to be here today. Can I also say that um, this event is being recorded and uh, for a later podcast, so please look online uh, for that um, upcoming podcast. And also there's a Twitter handle uh, on, on the slides, to, um, and please engage on Twitter um, uh, at your convenience. We have a really dynamic panel here. We have dy dynamic speakers here. It's, uh, I'm going to be learning a lot from this session, as I'm sure you will as well. Uh, we're dealing with a lot of really important topics, but what is important for me here today is that we're connecting scholarship, research, with community engagement. And I think that's something really important, something the university is moving towards, but a lot more needs to be done. So I think this is a good opportunity to show the, the possibilities of, engage, of connecting uh, scholarship with um, community development and uh, community initiatives, cultural initiatives from the community. First of all, I'd like to um, introduce Dr. Sam uh, Bauker. He's a lecturer in uh, art history and visual culture at Charles Sturt University. He teaches Islamic art and design from contemporary Australian perspectives and curated Khayamiya, uh, uh, the, the tent makers of Cairo, for the Islamic Art Museum Malaysia. In 2015, he was a, a scholar in residence for the Doris Duke Foundation of Islamic Art in Shangri-La, Honolulu. He spent over a decade working in education for the National Portrait Gallery, the National Museum of Australia, and the National Library of Australia. His PhD was from the Australian National University where he lectured in art and design theory. Welcome. Next. And I'll introduce the other speakers as we move through the program, but um, thank you, Sam. Thank you very much, Amit, for a very generous introduction, and thank you all for joining us. I'd also like to thank our hosts and co-chairs for presenting with us today. And as a traveller from Wiradjuri land in Wagga Wagga, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the, people, the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation, and acknowledge their elders, past, present and future. I'm here today, of course, to talk about the idea of the Australian mosque. When I showed an image of one of these Afghan Kamalia mosques to a conference of historians of Islamic art last year up in Singapore, I told them that this was the most distinctive thing that Australia has contributed to the international discourse on Islamic architecture. And they laughed. It was, of course, Australia tends to be overlooked in surveys of Islamic architecture, art and design. Our contributions are not monumental. They are not uh, statements of empire and power. 
they are instead coming from a very different discourse, not regarded as national icons, but rather manifestations of the communities that they serve, reflective of their agency, reflective of the discourses within which they are built, as all architecture, after all, is a commentary upon the issues surrounding it at the time of design and building. For me as well, one of the most important things about the Australian mosque as a concept is it is a form of built heritage that completely rejects the possibility of a golden age reference. I find the idea of a golden age in any form of art history deeply problematic. And I find it very useful as an Australian that we're coming into this with a sense that our built heritage legacy within Australia does not have to refer to an imperial past of high-scale monumental grandeur. We have these instead to look back upon. So from this, the challenge in talking about the Australian mosque is at the moment there is no such thing as the Australian mosque. We are looking instead at the plurality of voices, at numerous smaller communities who have created individual contributions. These might be regarded as going from the outback to the suburban to the future. And this also follows a narrative of the mythic to the diasporic to the utopian. Now, each form speaks to a gradually larger community, from a marginalised local minority to a speculative political or national forum, whether they want it or not, in the sense of the people speaking on behalf of the mosque. Now, Kenneth Frampton first published on the ideas of critical regionalism back in the 1980s, at around the same time, a significant international development of new mosques, particularly funded by different causes following the Iranian Revolution, for example, or Saudi expansion, or Saudi nationalism. When we are looking at this too, the current conference of the historians of Islamic art who are meeting in October in London this year, it's about regional, regionality, looking for the local in the arts of Islam. So this is a really good time to be talking about Australian contributions to this international field. Now, the challenge that we face when looking at the Australian mosque is do we look to a regional spectacular or an urban vernacular? Do we end up with a few humble structures in the distant outback, um, which are really quite rare and quite modest in scale, or do we look towards very active, popular uh, buildings made in the suburbs, primarily from the late 1970s onwards? So uh, this is a question really for the qualitative versus the quantitative as an architectural review. I'm showing you, of course, a very famous mosque within Australia, the Maori Mosque, known as the oldest mosque for which we have evidence of a physical structure. It is no longer standing in its current form, reconstructed in 2003 instead. Now, the, of course, earlier we would have had encounters with the Macassans in the northwest of Australia on a land they would have known as Maoreje. Now, on Maoreje, there are no uh, known remnants of mosque structures, but there are remnants of built environments that were influenced by contacts with the Macassan traders. And from my point of view, I think it is very likely that the first Islamic prayer ceremony or calling of the Adhan would have been held on Australian soil well prior to a Christian ceremony, which I find an interesting point, but for which there is no physical remain, no architectural statement legacy. Now, when we're looking at this, however, if we think about first and early claims, uh, contested claims to the early origins of mosque work in Australia, this reminds me particularly of accounts of the first mosque back in Saudi, or what is now Saudi Arabia. The idea of it being consisting of a thatched roof, palm timber, mud brick, and orientation towards Mecca.
quite a simple structure that at the time did not feature domes, mukhanas, minarets, or, min, or a mihrab, although it did feature a minbar. So what we are seeing today as well is within the Maori mosque, ideas that suit a grand Australian narrative of the outback legends, of resilience, of individuals working and quite a hard labour at that to create things that are meaningful to them and their communities, and the idea of, oh pardon me, thank you, and the idea of the individuals using the materials available to them at the time, this importance of materiality as a defining feature of the local and architecture. Now, from here, it begs the question, what have the Umayyads ever done for us? When we're looking at this structure, of course, we can see one of the reasons why the historians of Islamic art uh, had a bit of reservation towards the Australian contributions to Australian Islamic architecture. When we are thinking about mosque as a national symbol, the Dome of the Rock, of course, is not a mosque, but it's a shrine. We're working separately here. Let's allow for its Islamic structure instead. It is, of course, an extremely important point of contact for Palestinian statehood. It is a manifestation of the complexities of place with interactions between Palestine, Israel, other groups in that area, each making claims for land, each making claims for space, and referring to this as a definitive structure which uh, encompasses identity like a point of the center of a compass from which people uh, move and radiate. When we are looking at this structure as well, I'm interested in how we could then think about the idea of an Australian mosque as something which is uh, referred to as it were on currency, for example. If we think about which Australian mosque would you see on an Australian currency, would it be one of these Mara mosques, one of these early Afghan Kamalia or Pakistani, Baluchistan mosques, or would we be looking at something of Australian suburban, like the Auburn Gallipoli instead? Oh, pardon me. Of course, when dealing with localised materiality, the extraordinary diversity of architectural heritage is well reflected within the Islamic um, realm. We are seeing here, of course, an example from China, extremely well known, the Great Mosque of Xi'an. Now, a form like this is indicative of the idea of artisanal skills being available to an area, a localised resource being the systems of construction not, and also the materiality, not only the objectives of the particular community within the space. This question about artisanal resources and materiality ties into one of the most spectacular interiors in Islamic architecture, the Shah Chirak Mosque complex in Shiraz in Iran. Uh, the Shia complex is completely lined with thousands of tiny mirrors. It was described by the artist Monir Shahuri Fahmin Fahmian as like standing in a diamond in the heart of the sun. And I'm showing this to you because you might think that an extraordinary space like this rejects place. It rejects the earthly realm in which it is encompassed by creating an alternative which is spectacular and immersive. However, we are really looking here at the idea of local availability of particular distinctive skills, mirror work mosaic, as something which is then a feature of the architecture of the building, referring to the community in which it is based and of course distinctive to the extent that when we see the structure we think immediately of this particular site because there's really nothing else like it. I asked you earlier about the idea of mosques on currency. I wasn't trying to be provocative. This is a very normal thing to encounter in Muslim-majority countries that work with mosques as national icons. So when we are looking at this, we are now seeing the Kaif Bay Mosque in Cairo, one of my favorite mosques in the city. Now, it's my favorite there particularly because of the scale of the site. It is very human-oriented. It is also an exemplar of many different craft forms which are still practiced in parts of Cairo today from a very long heritage. 
and of course the use of a mosque in this particular manner where we are seeing it used as a piece of contemporary identity as a structure that was over 600 years old it begs the question of how those intervening 600 years used mosques like this as a statement of identity in place, in nation. We do see in Cairo the existence of movements like Neo-Fatimid, the Mamluk revival, where we see historicism based on very specific local uh, lexicons and architecture. And this is coming problematic when we start applying it further afield. You could say it's problematic to begin with in Egypt, where each dynastic movement may be defined by the eras of its time rather than taking pastiches of local forms. But when you start thinking about a pan-international or transnational uh, form of Islamic architecture, where one particular style may be seen as the correct style, this starts getting problematic. And what I think is really important about examples like this is that the Egyptian currency, like most global currencies, is focusing on what they see as distinctly, uniquely local. This has applications for Australia. And Malaysia. Now, has anyone here been to the Najid Mas uh, Mas Najara before? A couple of us, very good to see. Now, I'm showing it to you because I find it as a very interesting example of contemporary nationalism applied to mosque design, or contemporary mosques applied to nationalism. What we are seeing here is a state mosque, a national mosque. If we had a the Australian mosque, it would be something I imagine along this line, or a mosque that purports to speak on behalf of the diverse communities of a national uh, region. What we're looking at here, of course, was designed in the 1960s, so it fits under the international modernist film, also kind of postmodern with its references, where we are seeing the evocation of what could be called cliches of Islamic architecture nowadays, the dome and the minaret where both are in fact an umbrella. This is a form taken from a traditional Malaysian form of umbrella, expanded in the case of the dome, retracted in the case of the minaret, which is evoking the idea of local custodial heritage with the structure of the building itself. It is also located in what might be called Kuala Lumpur's equivalent of the parliamentary triangle in Canberra, where it is just adjacent to the Islamic uh, Art Museum, a number of other major sites of cultural significance, and that white building in front is something which has a curious parallel to Australia as well, the Heroes Mausoleum. This is the truly a burial site for individuals of great significance to the nation of Malaysia. Within the dome we find prime ministers, just beyond the dome we find other people of significance to the nation, so major scientists, humanitarians, both men and women. I find this to be another alternative of a national portrait gallery. So, from here. If we're looking across to the idea of architecture being defined by individuals within Islamic art, we find something interesting as well. Many of you who study Islamic art will be familiar that this is a field that can almost be defined by the preponderance of anonymous artisans who are creating things without knowing who their names are today. The case of Mimar Sinan, however, is a very different point. Mimar Sinan, Turkish poly pardon me, Ottoman polymath, engineer, uh, extraordinary uh, technical innovations which have since defined what for many people would be the Ottoman mosque, looking particularly for the very broad domes, particular forms of interior uh, design and decorative spaces, as well as the, of course, pencil minaret. If we are thinking about the extremely fine fluted minaret, that's a characteristic Ottoman symbol, and of course appropriated by many other nations around the world which weren't even within the Ottoman realm, like Australia. So when we're seeing this right now, we're thinking about the connection of one individual to a national style, the Ottoman style Minar Sinan. This case over here, Mehmet Aga's Sultan Ahmed Mosque, uh, one of the defining features of the Istanbul skyline, 
uh, as I said earlier, the pencil-thin minarets, the very broad domes, a particular use of space which is characteristic to Ottoman style, and can also be interestingly scaled up to this or scaled down to very small-scale community mosques that still feel Ottoman with that quality of spatial interaction, material relations, and the uh, expectations of the structure in the space. So when we are looking at this, of course, it's also curious that we are seeing this particular skyline. Notice again the number of minarets. If you're unsure which Ottoman mosque you're looking at, count the minarets. When we are looking at this particularly, it's curious that uh, the Ottoman mosque is defined as a statement of power and empire, remembering that these types of mosques appeared in Europe during a height of expansion for the Ottoman Empire up until the mid-17th century, where, uh, yes, that's correct, pardon me, um, where we are looking at the idea of uh, encountering place and defining it as newly Ottoman. A very simple way of doing that, of course, is to create a mosque in the style that you are encompassing your national brand, as it were. And of course, it brings us back to Australia. Now, if we're thinking about suburban identity and mosque design, we have to think about what the mosque says as a comment on space. We are thinking here, with this case of the Sunshine Mosque in Victoria, clearly a strong Ottoman reference. It is um, indicative of first-generation to second-generation migrant narratives. And, of course, the idea of migration is a very strong narrative within Islam. We talk about the hijir, after all, um, the idea of moving from one place to another and carrying country with you. Uh, one of my colleagues at CSU, Yusuf Saleh, uh, Sali Yusuf, wrote about forms of, uh, of um, identification with your nation as uh, Watna al-Sukna and Watna al-Asli, the idea of country of origin, country of residence, as well as Watna al-Safari, country through which you are traveling. So when we're thinking about these terms in application to Australian mosque design, we start seeing a framework through which we can encounter what types of mosques are being built and on what terms. Question, comment. Oh, five minutes? That's all right then. No worries at all. When we are looking at this now, uh, you've all seen this, I presume, before. It's your local, I imagine, in some cases. When we are thinking about structures like this, of course, we can see within the overtly Ottoman or Turkish references in the design, which of course extend to parts of Europe as well, um, we are thinking about particular forms which are catering to communities of certain ethnic backgrounds. We are seeing ethnicity within architecture, which I have to say is unusual in Australian uh, urban landscape, and I find that a striking contribution. It is also one of the key things that we do not see in mosques currently under construction or when I see as a future form of Australian mosque design. When we are seeing over here again another reference to the uh, origin of a community within Australia, that migration story, the, and the Ahmadiyya uh, emerged in India in the late 19th century, as I call. And when we are seeing this now, we are, it reminds me of a poem by Denise Frum, which was about her mother's accent, which referred to her mother's accent as being like a stubborn compass, always pointing her home. So from here, this brings us to what is an Australian mosque. The Adelaide Mosque is the oldest extant urban mosque in Australia and, of course, is evolved from forms that are characteristically now seen as typical of Australian Federation style. We're looking here at bluestone. We're looking at the forms of window arches, which were seen as modifications from chapels. Indeed, it was called the Afghan Chapel when first opened by commentators and newspapers. The uh, minarets were added over the subsequent years of its first creation and the garden space around it was defined as a typically Australian garden when it was put together. So here, and I'm also showing you the urban streetscape. A little comment, by the way, when I was there last, this notion of mosques devaluing house prices, 
doesn't happen. There was a sign on one house for sale nearby saying, uh, own a piece of Australian history by living in this street. I thought that was great. Another comment then about Australian design and mosque um, interior spaces. If we're thinking about Islamic design as something brought in from overseas and then used to define Islamic identity almost as an opposition point of Australian identity, we end up with a heritage which is reminding us of the stories of our ancestors. And I think that's good and important. But is it what we might call an Australian form? If we're thinking about something which changes this a little bit, the Cabramatta Mosque as opposed to the Kemba Mosque is a... Uh, restored space, renovated space, not at all unusual in the history of Islamic architecture. Think right now of the Hagia Sophia. It is a renovated space, and it's still a mosque, well, not a museum, pardon me, but one of the grandest mosques in existence. So this has in common with Kabramatta Mosque. But when we're seeing this right now, I'm showing you this in terms of the idea of a architecture that speaks to marginalization, the deprivation of agency, the idea of this will do while we're working on this, and this is our space, it's our community that needs it, we're defining it by its function for us. Not necessarily the need to create a purpose-built structure, but rather to accommodate what's available to us at the time. A very interesting lesson on this was raised by the Icelandic Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. You may have heard of this before. Christoph Buchel presented the mosque, which was the converted church of Santa Maria della Misericordia in the island of Venice. He turned it into a real functioning mosque, with imam and prayer assignments and so on. It was closed after three days, citing complaints from neighbours and police intervention. Extraordinary story in this case. It was the first mosque ever to open on the island of Venice. And it was an artwork. It wasn't intended as a long-term prospect. Another comment here is on Australian forms of design. Within the um, mosques we see in Australia, of course, we see, in many cases, ideas brought from the rich heritage of Islamic art from overseas. And I'm also showing you this little example here of Lucien Henry's Waratah. Lucien Henry was a designer really known in Australia for his shaping of a national design, a national Australian style, which for him focused pretty heavily on the Waratah. I'm interested in how he's positioned here the Waratah and the Islamic pattern behind it as two separate things that interact through space. I'm interested in potential for an Australian Islamic art which does not look like anything we've seen before. By that, I do not simply mean taking the floral patterns from these ethnic tiles and turning them into native Australian plants. That could be done. It's an option. But I'm looking at the mathematical pattern behind the Waratah and thinking, what can we do with the maths, for example, that has not yet been done? That would be a contribution as opposed to adjustment and rearrangement. But thinking also about the social media of mosques, I am showing you one of my favorite mosques of Instagram, the Nasir Ulmuk Mosque, which is known particularly for its, oh, thank you very much, known particularly for its extraordinary windows in early hours of the day, casting tremendous forms of light. On looking at this mosque from the Qajar era, which is what we might call Persian modernism, really, when we're seeing this right now, we are looking at a form which to me evokes Leonard French's glass windows and the ceiling of the National Gallery of Victoria. This idea of spectacular spaces defined by glass and light. In Leonard French's case, it's basically secular, but we're moving on from there. But this is an idea which is borrowed again by the new mosque being developed by Glenn Merkett and Hakan Everbi, where we are seeing, in this case, uh, forms that are borrowing light as lantern, Australian style, which is modernist, which is quite a distinctive form, and as yet unfinished. I have yet to see the building myself. Oh, you want to get a photo? I'll move backwards for you. That's okay. Um, 
as a sketch, I find the Newport Mosque really exciting. Remember, it's the Australian Islamic Centre, nicknamed Newport Mosque. It contains a mosque along with community spaces, schooling and other facilities for the community it's in. The thing I find most interesting about this, not, however, is not that it's a new mosque. It's that it's Glenn Merkett doing this. My students who are studying design with Australian backgrounds are often asked one particular question on tutorials. What is Australian style? Frequently, they come back to me with anything Glenn Merkett made. So if we're starting with this idea of a star architect being the arbiter of an Australian style, what's going to happen when he takes control of the project for mosque or collaborates with um, Hakan Efebi? Not, let's, not, let's not forget the emerging architect here along the story. But when we are looking at this scenario, I'm interested in seeing how we might then shape this. I see this potentially having the effect of Mimar Sinan on Ottoman design. What did Glenn Merkett's mosque say about future Australian mosques as an inclusive space for public engagement and open discourse? It's also currently on show at the National Gallery of Victoria as an architecture of faith exhibition, um, which you can see in person in Melbourne if you wish. I have done so. It's certainly worth a look. It is a very clearly um, contemporary structure. I'm also showing you again the Bendigo Mosque. Who thought I was going to mention the Bendigo Mosque at some point in this lecture? No one. Oh, really? Australian Mosque? I was expecting that. When we see the Bendigo Mosque, I imagine we think about the controversies of the site and the opposition by parts of the community, who I notice on Facebook to be primarily from non-Australian backgrounds, as in UK, from looking back at their profiles. So an aspect from there to consider. But when we are looking at this, I want to show one particular thing to you. Notice the skylights. These are based, in part, upon the scar forms of Wiradjuri trees, or amongst other, probably not Wiradjuri, local custodians' trees. We are thinking here of indigenous forms appearing in a mosque. That is something which I'm looking forward to seeing expanding in the future. Not as a thing I want to see more of, but I want to see what happens when it's brought into reality. And of course, another direction for future mosque design in Australia, the Islamic Museum of Australia, which makes direct references to the Afghan Kamalias mosques. I find that very interesting in terms of the corrugated materials, the rustic quality of that material. I find this really interesting because you don't normally see a monumental architecture on the scale for the idea of reappropriating such humble structures, but museums are a space that is expected to discuss identity in Australia. And what better place than the Islamic Museum of Australia to see a shaping what could be the future Australian mosque. Another view of the interior. And finishing today, on my local. This is a mosque you've probably never seen before, the Mosque of Wagga Wagga. This is actually built on the Charles Sturt University campus grounds, subtle but very much in keeping with the university architecture around it. If you didn't know it was there, you wouldn't even realise it was a mosque. It is oriented towards Mecca, of course, and it is also the highest building on the hill on which the university is based. It is discreet, it evokes the landscape, it does not interrupt the skyline. I think those concepts are crucial as part of an Australian style, and I'm very proud to see this as part of university structure. So on that note, I've taken my time. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for such an illuminating presentation. And um, I should say that the fantastic thing about being involved in Sydney Ideas events is the opportunity to meet wonderful people like you doing amazing research. And uh, it's, a, it's been a privilege for me. And I'm really looking forward to engaging in discussion with you uh, later on today, uh, tonight. Thank you very much. I look forward to questions as well after discussion. Thank you. Another person who I've had the pleasure of meeting uh, as part of this seminar uh, is Reem Swade. And uh, it's, a, it's an honour to um, introduce you to the podium uh, today. Reem is the president of 
Muslims for Progressive Values in Australia, a grassroots organisation that advocates a compassionate interpretation of Islam focused on social dignity, equality and human rights. She's currently pursuing her PhD at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation. Her research focus is on, the developing, uh, on developing an effective alternative narrative to combating Islamism. Reem is passionate about progressive Islamic thought and currently working with Professor Shahram Akbarzadeh, the Deputy Director uh, International of um, Alfred Deakin Institute, on a series of papers that explore contemporary progressive Islamic scholarship. Everyone, please welcome Reem. Thank you. Um, and I'd be like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. And I'd like to say, Sam, jeez, you've made it very difficult for me now. Because <laughs> I'm not, like, this is not, I, I'm an academic because I'm doing my PhD, but this is not my area of, of my PhD or research. It's my, my area of passion. It's why I work or volunteer with MPV as the president and um, I'm pushing that more inclusive uh, interpretation of Islam. Um, so I guess um, I've got my notes here and I'm going to try and give you the best presentation I can. I don't have, um, the, like I said, that this, the depth of knowledge of mosque architecture and art. So what I'm going to focus on is the conversation that's being had within the Islamic community and the role of women in mosques and how that has changed over time. It'll be quite a brief snapshot given the 20 minutes I've got, but it'll be kind of trying to outline where we're at now and the emergence of a movement of Islamic feminism and the women's mosque. Um, so this is a artist's graphic impression of what the first ever mosque would have looked like. Um, it, you can see it's got um, one main space which is open, one entryway, and the two, the two houses on the side are actually the houses of Aisha and Saudat, so the Prophet's wives. Um, everybody was welcome in this mosque. It was more than just a religious space where people prayed. It was the space where you know, laws were debated, where, uh, where judgments were made. Um, it was, in that, in that sense, a little bit of a town hall and a parliament at the same time as being a religious space where people congregated for prayer. There's no dome or minaret, and it's not I mean, what you would envisage necessarily as the Islamic mosque, which should make you wonder where do minarets and domes come from <laughs> and why do we have them on all the mosques, but I think that's beyond my, maybe Sam can answer that later. <laughs> so, this is Mecca today. Um, probably one of the only places, actually, where you can find men and women intermingling in a religious space. Um, so you can see them, they're sitting around. It's a very big space, and they're kind of waiting here for the call to prayer. And um, it's remained true to the essence of what the religious spirit in was at the time of the Prophet Muhammad in that it is not gender segregated. That might be because it would be practically impossible to gender segregate such a space, but also because at the time of the Prophet Muhammad, the Hajj and the Umrah were done in a non-segregated manner, and there's a lot of evidence about that, that they weren't segregated. So it would be very difficult for them to argue to change the way Hajj is performed and start to segregate would be what they call a bid'ah, so it's a... It's a um, What's the, what's the word for bid'ah in English? 
innovation of Islam to segregate them. So it remains unsegregated, although in the last few years, over the last decade, there has started to be some segregation in the balconies, and sometimes people self-segregate, so it's not like you have, to, you have to pray next to a man if you want to find a group of women to pray with. So here is people at prayer in Mecca, and you can see where I've circled in black that there are women praying next to men, right? It's not like it's acceptable, it's done, because people are doing their tawaf, they're going around the Kaaba, and then the call to prayer happens, and they find the closest place, and they just pray. Also, they come to Hajj and Amrah with their family, so they don't want to lose their family in that space and go to a different section to pray, so this happens out of practical reasons. So, where am I? This is what it's like generally in mosques now for women. It's segregated. Um, the segregation began at, at the time of Omar, uh, the Khalif Omar, who didn't really want his wife to go to the mosque. Um, for whatever reason, it's just, it was a patriarchal society, it was a misogynistic society, and the mosque wasn't just a place of uh, prayer, it was a place of political discourse, it was a place where women could have a say and were supposed to have a voice, and people who didn't want women to have a voice or a say were looking for ways to get them out of the mosque. And so under, um, under Omar, they did segregate women, and women started to pray in a separate area because his wife refused to not go to the mosque. So, so she... So now, generally, the way they segregate women, there's three options. You can be put in a separate room that's upstairs or in the back side, and, and sometimes now, even if you're lucky, they'll put a video link to the imam that's praying in the other proper room, and you can see the imam, and you can hear him through a microphone, but you can't actually be part of the prayer physically. Um, and... If you're, if, you're, if you're lucky, you have a balcony, and that way you can be physically in the room. But if you look here in Boston, Jordan, the balcony is tiny, um, which is another way to push women out of the mosque, is they don't get the same. Maybe if they're lucky, they get about 25% ratio uh, of, the, of the area, if they're lucky. But I reckon most mosques I've been to is probably 5 or 10% maximum. Uh, that's dedicated to women. And women usually bring the children with them, so you'd think they needed a larger space, but um, that's not the case at the moment. Um, it doesn't function in the same way anymore, a mosque. It is purely a religious space, really, where people might discuss religious questions at most. So it doesn't have the same um, connotations for women to not be able to engage through with politics or with public life, but it does have the impact of making women less visible and making women not um, equal members of the community. So if someone wanted to raise an issue with the imam or an issue that is uh, you know, happening with the community that they wanted to, to consult with, women are not allowed to be present, they're not part of the conversation, therefore they're marginalized. What happens when they're marginalized is that as soon as the space becomes too... Um, crowded, the first people to get kicked out are women. This is a mosque in Soho. This is not uncommon. I'm sorry, sisters, you can't pray here. So technically, you should be able to pray. You should be able to go in and pray behind the men if you wanted to pray behind the men, but some women are not allowed to go to mosques. I've seen it a lot around the Middle East as well, where they just say, I'm sorry, you can't pray here because you're a woman. Um, so really, it's gotten to a pretty bad situation for a lot of women where they just don't feel welcome. And it's also quite 
within the cultural tradition said it's not obligated for women to go to the mosque and so you get men saying oh well you don't have to so why are you and then you really shouldn't and then you should probably stay at home and then you know and so it kind of changes the dynamic where spirituality between a man and his god is more important than the spirituality between a woman and her god so women have dealt with this in different ways over time um, and generally we do have a history of having women's mosques. Um, so here is a mosque in, in Biblos in Lebanon and also in China. China has had quite, has quite a few women's mosques as a part of a tradition. It's, uh, it kind of started with wanting to educate women and giving them a space to learn the Quran and then that turned into a bit of a mosque and they have female imams and, and it has given them a voice so it's returned some of that to, um, to women. So education um, is... Uh, a key part of it. So here's the Women's Mosque in America, which opened about two or three years ago, and it is solely for women. It is run by women. They've got female imams. Men are not allowed. So now we're talking about segregation again, in that sense. I mean, because you're going back to the idea of, you know, keeping mosques for women and mos mosques for men, and therefore men can't be part of the community conversation. Does it really solve the problem, um, or does it just create two different communities? Um, I think it's good for women to have a space to go, uh, when, uh, and I would think that I wouldn't say that it's not worth having women's only mosques, but there are other models that are emerging, um, and there are questions that are kind of the questions that are being asked are why can't women just be part of the general mosque area, general mosque population, and why can't they lead prayers? Which leads me to um, Amina Wadud, who maybe some of you have heard of. Um, she's an American. Muslim convert, she's a scholar of Islam, she's, very, she's got a lot of credentials. She was asked to lead prayer because the hadith generally goes, um, the most learned of you should be the leader. And she was, in the, in the eyes of her companion, companions, the most learned. And so she went and she researched it and she came to the conclusion that actually there was nothing prohibiting women from leading prayer. So, um, so now she goes and she, she does do prayers and she leads mixed um, gender prayers around the world. She gets mixed reactions. So I put a little bit here. I don't know if you can see it, but there are some reactions from people which are really venomous and they think that this is a, you know, a corruption of Islam to have a woman leading prayer or to even have mixed prayer or to see women and men. So there's a really crazy kind of um, cognitive dissidence in that they look at this picture and they see men and women praying next to each other and they think it's ridiculous and then they go to the Kaaba and Mecca which is the holiest place in Islam and men and women are praying next to each other but they kind of think that's okay so the conversation needs to be had and the parallels need to be made and we need to draw back to the original purpose and the original rights that were given to women and the voice that was given to them at the time of the Prophet Muhammad when he allowed them into the mosques and allowed them to take part in the conversations even around parliament, around uh, politics and law, etc. So, there are in Denmark and in the UK and in different um, in Canada as well. I think in Germany there are different models that are coming up. In Denmark, Shireen Tansan, who's um, a Syrian, uh, Syrian-born, sorry, Danish-born Syrian, um, started a women's-only mosque that is led by women but allowed men, um, and. In the UK, um, there's a mosque opening up that 
doesn't, that has a male imam but has a women-run management committee which will then try and kind of uh, protect the rights of women in the mosques there um, and, uh, and ensure that they get the right kind of you know, treatment and that they feel welcomed and that they're not kind of being discriminated against. So I, from, from Muslims from progressive values, we prefer the idea of not segregating and encouraging female imams to lead both men and women and to give them equal status from the perspective of um, they are provided equal status by God and they will be judged equally by God, therefore they should have equal status um, in this world. Um, the, the scholarly jurisprudence that supports this and it supports female imams is there and it is open to discussion and it is open to debate and we have scholars, male scholars as well, Khaled Abu Fadl, Nasr Abu Zaid, who argue that um, there is precedence and there are hadiths that, that support women to be able to pray and to lead prayer. Um, what isn't there is a prohibition. You know, there's nothing that suggests that there is a prohibition from women leading prayer. The justification that people use to marginalize women and to segregate them from the areas are largely twofold. One is that they uh, that it's not an obligation on them, which I mentioned before, but the other is that there are distractions, um, and so therefore they should be uh, not visibly, you know, anywhere where men might be distracted by them. Um, and I think that both of them are really weak reasons. Um, men are equally distractions for women. Uh, if you're a 16-year-old woman at the mosque and your crush is <laughs> praying in front of you, you'll be distracted as well. It's not like it's only men that get distracted, but it also sexualizes women and, 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 and uh, kind of still becomes that, oh, men can't control themselves, so therefore women need to be somewhere else. Um, so it's not really, I think, the kind of progressive conversation that Muslims need to be having. Um, and questioning them and questioning the motives behind segregation really gets to the core of that, gets to the core of some of the issues that we have within the community and some of the gendered issues that we have in the way we view women and men. Um, so this is the Inclusive Mosque Initiative. Um, it's another initiative that's in the UK. It focuses on um, on providing a safe space for Muslims. So you can see here that it's a woman leading a mixed gender prayer and she's not even wearing hijab. Jaw drop. <laughs> because it is very difficult for women and for Muslims to come to terms with this idea of how you can have a spiritual practice or a ritual and it's very much based on the ritual practice of Islam. Without hijab is your uh, salah going to be accepted or not, you know, and, and I think that I read somewhere someone saying that um, if you're a woman and you lead prayer, your prayer for mixed gender, your prayer will be accepted, but the prayer of the men following you will not be accepted, which is bizarre because people just assume that they understand what will and will not be accepted by God. Um, but I wanted to tell you a little bit about the Inclusive Mosque Initiative because it focuses also on sexual diversity in Islam and on giving a space for LGBT Muslims to feel safe and to be able to practice and identify with whatever gender they identify with. So, you know, there are Muslims out there, as there are in every community, who are, you know, not necessarily... Um, uh, 
with gender normative, I think is the term, <laughs> and so uh, they don't feel comfortable in either the male space or the female space, and, uh, and these inclusive mosque initiatives are really providing them that kind of space to be able to practice their faith and to feel encouraged to come closer to their spirituality, and it gives them a voice again. So a lot of these um, mosques that are popping up, like the Danish one and this one in the UK, they're actually stru I mean, structurally just like apartments or little basement blocks where people get together and pray, similar to some of the stuff that you were showing, Sam, like just about, you know, um, until you get your, your, you get it together and you can actually get a proper mosque. But it does the job, but it also does something which I'll, I'll end on, is it, it brings us back to um, this. You know, uh, so people think it's, you know, it's not a mosque if it doesn't have minarets or domes or whatever, but this is what it was. It was a, it's a space where people can come together as a community and have a voice and feel safe and discuss things and have spiritual conversations and have, you know, advocate for issues that they feel, you know, strongly about, whether that's feminism or LGBT issues or whatever it is. And, and these are the kinds of mosques that we really need to go back to and stop from them away from the grandiose you know, golden cladded domes and back to the real original purpose and meaning of having a mosque in the community. Thank you. Thank you so much for an extremely rich paper, the presentation. Um, this has been a great opportunity to meet you um, and uh, I'm looking forward to more discussion about uh, the topics that you raised uh, also, I want to congratulate you on the advocacy that you have been doing uh, and for promoting progressive values. So thank you. Yeah, keep it up. <laughs> I'm really grateful to both Sam and to Reem for taking us around the world, introducing us to these fantastic sp uh, spiritual colours and the spiritual figures that we've been experiencing throughout uh, um, the seminar so far. We're going to have a discussion a discussion for 10 minutes featuring Sam and Reem. So I welcome you to uh, come and sit um, at the front. And I'm also really interested in um, the comments and questions by the audience. And we're going to um, uh, allow time for questions uh, at the end. But uh, for 10 minutes, I think it's really important to clarify, to engage, to um, introduce some of the more important work and to maybe touch on some of the, the features that you've been um, um, addressing and I think that what's important here is that is to, con to consider the diverse cultural expressions of mosque design, past and present, in areas where Muslim populations are both minorities and majorities. And this is something that we'll, I hope we can touch on now. But we want to analyse the history and reasons behind traditional gender segregation in mosques, as you've pointed out, and how the segregation plays itself out in mosque architecture and affects ultimately the spiritual experience of the community, which ties in with what um, you've uh, introduced to us today. We also discuss the Arabization of mosques and the extent to which contemporary Australian approaches to sacred space might offer a distinctive contribution to the wider Islamic global heritage. And it's on this point that I want to maybe propose a question to you, Sam, if you don't mind. And that's the, how you see the connection between the global and the local. We talked about this and you gave me some really interesting insights and maybe you can elaborate for our audience. Thank you very much. I'm here for a great question. The global and the local in Islam. 
I imagine, first of all, we uh, think about the concepts of Ummah and Deen as the expanded Islamic community around the world. And within that, of course, we have the plurality discourse. What I start with, though, is that it's, I think, impossible to speak on behalf of the broader terms like this. We can only really work with what's meaningful to an individual from their own experiences. And at best, they might be transnational or multiple different experiences, knowing what life is like in many areas around the world. But in practice, especially for the students that I teach at Charles Sturt University, many of my students are based in regional Australia. They have not yet had the opportunity to travel for no fault through their own, of course. It's a matter of who has um, access to this kind of privilege. And from my point of view, when teaching Islamic art and architecture, I have to consider what are my students going to relate to. So this is a starting point for any conversation I have about Islamic design, Islamic heritage, is what is starting as a familiar point. And this is where I find so many of your comments now on gender to be really important on this, because it's one of the things where my students might assume that um, Islamic art is a patriarchy inherently, because ones we see are made for men or objects commissioned by men and so on. A big part of my uh, subject is trying to show students that this was a mosque commissioned by a woman, or that this was something made for a woman to use, or depicting women in public life. And this is an important part of what I think is a way of teaching Islamic art for the future, is to focus on regionality, based on the local, and then gender as part of that as well. But do you have any comment on this as well, about um, how do you start a conversation about gender in Islam with people who are not otherwise in the field? Or how do you start? <laughs> oh, sorry, it's a big question, I realize. That's okay. Um, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think discussing space is a perfect place to begin because mm. uh, bringing up issues around practical issues that can mm. you know get people to start to think about the role of, of women and their role whether it's in you know designing or in management committees or in being at the pulpit and leading it um, mm. it can be uh, can be kind of brought to the fore by talking about new mosques so I would love to have been a fly on the wall uh, of um, the design, what was his name? The architect? Mimar Sanan or Glenn Merkut? Yeah, Merkut, uh, when they were discussing w how oh big yes. they would make the women's space and how mm. they would do it and what mm. and who they consulted to do that. You know, did they consult women or did they just consult the Im national boards of imams? Mm. So that, that's a really good place to try to make some change, I think. Mm, yeah. I have a question for you as well, by the way. Why are you holding the microphone? <laughs> While you're on it. That's okay. Something I've... I've been struck by the realization that I've never heard of or seen or known in the literature of a female muezzin. Yeah. Has this ever happened or is it something that still can't yet be broached in the area? How well, do you find you this? Oh, oh, there are people who believe that a woman's voice is aura, mm. like uh, mm. it's aura is like it's, um, uh, what's the word? Unlawful because it's kind of it's her it's her it's sexual you know so they can't like they can't handle <laughs> listening to a woman's voice and so she should be quiet and so I'm sorry I'm, I'm not I'm not anti I love Islam like I'm Muslim and I love Islam very much and this is why I do this stuff because yeah. I care but um but I just think that it's so there's the idea of there being a female muezzin is probably a long way away mm. yeah. Um, the call to prayer. The person who issues the adhan, the one who will stand upon the minaret in the old days of the war and speak from there to the community at large. You hear oh, it every time you watch a terrorist film when they turn oh the background. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Allah, 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 Allah. Allah. Yeah. This, this, like this is somewhere ethnic soundbite. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
Would you like to start with Sufism or how should we go from there? Uh, yeah, I think Sufism lends a lot to progressive Islam. They mm. have a much mm. more um, kind of critical space uh, and I think more spiritual and less rigid. And, uh, and I'm not a Sufi myself, but um, I think that we could probably learn a lot from each of the traditions by opening, you know, by looking into them and learning how they got where they are in that sense as well. So there are aspects of Sufism that are much better in terms of gender for women. I think they, am I right in thinking, I don't know if anyone here knows uh, that there are Sufi female saints as well. Uh, and so, you know, women do have kind of a, um, a, a, a elevated role in spirituality from the Sufi Muslim perspective. Mm-hmm. I think from the perspective of Islamic art, Particularly, Sufism is one of the most important things you can study because it invests so much in the built environment in the sense of uh, what is the position of the artisan in relation to the object. And Sufism comes in with this with many key points. I remember when I was first studying the calligraphy or the epigrams, more accurately, of the Khadival Qayyamiyyah, the tent makers of Cairo, one of the things we wanted to find out was where were these phrases from? We thought initially maybe Quranic and so on, but usually they weren't. In fact, very, very few were but quite a few of them were described to me by the first person to translate them as, oh yeah, that's a Sufi thing. So it was a matter of seeing this as a frequent point of contact. And again, I tell my students that one of the most important things to understand about Sufism is you can spend a very, very long time studying it and not necessarily get very far. So it's a matter of generally being aware of the impact, but not necessarily, as Australian students, studying it from inside. I'd like to add something. I joined a Sufi meditation group in Melbourne where I live, uh, Naqshbandi, I think it was, and they were not gender segregated and they did not were, yeah, so I think that they do already provide a lot of, you know, um, spaces for Muslims to uh, participate spiritually in a safe zone, um, but it's just that Sufism is regarded by a lot of t- Muslims for, as being kind of way out there and almost almost on the fringes of Islam, if not some people would say outside of Islam because of the kinds of practices that they do. But I think that they are definitely the source of kind of knowledge and uh, a place to go and start to search for the justifications behind the way that they practice Islam. Mm, yeah, very good. Uh, question from you this time or who should we go to now? I'm happy to ask another question, but you're doing much better than I ever imagined. No, no, that's fine. That's all good. No worries at all. Okay. I mean, I have a lot of questions because this discussion is so fascinating, but one of the things that I'm really interested in, and uh, I hope um, the audience also, uh, it resonates with the audience, is that is transnationalism. Mm. The issue, And I think what I admire about... Um, um, Muslims for Progressive Values is that it's uh, a genuinely transnational initiative with, with leaders in different places, but who all connect with each other and are not bound by or limited by borders. They're not limited by their local spaces. So they're, they're driven by and characterised by it, but they go uh, beyond that. So I'm interested in your uh, understanding of the impact of this transnational character for your movement and also for um, your uh, I- imagination of what, what a progressive mosque might look like. And maybe after that, Sam, you could tell us what you think the role of men will be in these discussions uh, uh, for um, gender equality. What, what does a male ally look like? Cool. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Can you 
that's going to need time to think on that. I will. I will have to think about that very carefully. Um, I also also would like to know okay. uh, what a multi-ethnic mosque would look like. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. because uh, they're all kind of you know. There's the Pakistani mosque. There's yeah. the you know, uh, Ahmadiyya mosques, and mm. you know, but you know, what about mosque? Because at MPV, our group uh, and our members generally come from everywhere so we've got you know arab muslims so we've got pakistani muslims and bosnian muslims and convert muslims and all sorts of muslims french muslims and you know south african muslims literally so uh we it's lovely because you know you kind of it gives you the forum to actually um figure out what is what is part of your culture and actually what is islam when you're talking to another muslim and they say oh I do such and such a thing because it's Islam, and you say, I've never done such and such a thing, and I've never even heard of it. And you realize, okay, that's not Islam, that's your culture, because, you know, it can't be Islam, because no one else here is. So it gives us a forum to recognize the, you know, the, the way that Islam has adopted so much from the different cultures that they're in, and the, the opportunity to create an Australian Islam is what I would be really interested in, one that incorporates Australian values and is able to do that in a space um, and, and architecture and art. Um, the other thing is, is that what you realize when you work in such a transnational movement is that the, the kind of commonalities that you have in values across the world. So uh, you can talk to someone who is a Uyghur Chinese Muslim and believes in the exact same kind of Islam that you know I believe in. Like I have interpreted things the same way. and. Uh, and we kind of come to the same value judgments around feminism and around, you know, um, freedom of religion and expression. So um, I think that it's really incredible to see how those values are actually transnational and um, not necessarily Western-centric values that are only merging in the West. Um, also, um, that these MPV really is a grassroots kind of bottom-up um, organizations. So we have MPV in the Netherlands, in Canada, in France, in the UK, in Chile, in South Africa, in Tunis and Bangladesh and Malaysia. And they um, all operate because someone there put their hand up and said, I want to have a say and I want to have a different kind of say. And, and, then, and then we just kind of work together to build this global movement that can start to change the conversation. It's a very, very ambitious project, and I admired very much what you're doing. It's extraordinary work. And in many ways, I was asked the, actually, I was asked the problem a few weeks ago, in fact, not in a bad way, just in a you know, thoughtful way. What problems does art history solve? And, of course, it's a challenging question because it does not deal with these types of really important change within communities and societies that uh, you're now working with, too. Um, now, coming back to your question initially about uh, what would a multi-ethnic mosque look like, there's actually a few of these in existence, and they're tricky to spot because they tend to be quite old. So that means that the recognition of what was historically multi-ethnic within it is, uh, to us, a series of things from around the same time, but not necessarily around the same place. So they do exist, and here I am thinking about structures in around the Mediterranean uh, West. So we start looking across at the idea of combination uh, forces in um, the early Mosul Cordoba, for example. We can see multiple ethnicities within the structures there, quite famously. Um, over in Syria and Damascus, the Great Umayyad Mosque has a number of features too, which can refer to multi-ethnicity of production and values there. But today, I think we run a real risk with multi-ethnicities in architecture, 
of pastiche. And my viewpoint on this is that pastiche is an architectural swear word. I think that's about right. So from there, that's the issue we have to run. So I like to see the idea of someone attempting this, but where it goes, who knows. Uh, but to your question I mean about uh, being an ally, I think there's three terms that have really helped me work with this, and I have to say I'm constantly learning what it means to be an ally. It's a thing where I know that I will always be learning from my students, from what they actually need. And I have to say my favourite kind of lecture is the one where I stand up and say, today we're talking about this, ask me questions. And that's probably the most useful form to know what students really want. But the three terms I found most useful in defining this have been, number one, mansplaining. Now, if you're not familiar with mansplaining, it's when someone tells you something you already know. Now, that's uh, at length, in a slightly patronising way. So that's something you always run the risk of as a lecturer. You're paid to stand up there and talk to some extent, but really we're here to listen as well. We have to understand what people want to know. Number two, cookie hunting. Now, a cookie hunter is someone who is expecting praise for doing what is already a sensible idea. So it's like, can I have a cookie for that now? I've done it. So this idea of being an ally in feminist discourse is to say, I'm here speaking on an issue, I'm doing something, I don't expect praise. I expect to be doing what is the right thing at the right time. So that was a useful term for me to learn as well. Um, another one from there is simply agency. Both of those terms come under the agency of someone doing and acting in a way that is empowering to that individual for terms that are their own. And that is why I make sure my students have multiple assignment choices, not just what I say to study, but a range of things to choose from within that, flexibilities of this form. Um, and within that, of course, comes the issue of privilege. People don't question privilege, nor do they necessarily spot it when it's systematic. Um, for example, when I first started teaching Australian art, I was inheriting someone else's subject outline, and it was entirely, for the first five weeks, male artists only. So that was an example here of thinking this could go unnoticed, or I could actually change it, intervene a bit. And am I then inserting tokenistic reference to women, or am I making this systematic as a real point of change? Sometimes asking why then no women in this week? What was really going on there? That kind of thing. Within Islamic art, the way I do this in my Islamic art unit, how do you create a feminist Islamic art? Is I ask a choose your own adventure series, where the first six weeks are once a week a particular type of materiality. So starting from the Quran and calligraphy, into pattern and ornament, into architecture, textiles, and what I call fireware, ceramics, metalwork, and um, glass. So that's the first part. Second part is a journey. So we go regionality across from North Africa to Egypt, what um, would be normally called the Middle East, so the Arab Middle East, then moving up into Turkey and Iran, into South Asia, talking about Pakistan and India, then Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Malaysia. In each of those six weeks, my students have five options. They can talk about either a old thing, which is usually architecture, sorry, it's just the way it is in Islamic art, a textile, because I think this is an important way of opening women's work and anonymous work into the conversation. A contemporary piece, so we're talking about recent artists or a new acquisition in a major museum or a contemporary issue in the newspapers around Islam and public identity. And women's involvements, which take any number of forms, whether it's a thing made for a woman, a piece uh, made by a woman, or commissioned by a woman as well. So where the women in Islam comes in that particular angle there. So that's how I think I try to be an ally. Thank you so much. Um, 
thank you for unpacking, both, to both of you, for unpacking such important topics. And thank you for teaching me that new term, cookie hunter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to remember that, that one. The other ones are new. But I heard one. that. Luckily, that wasn't an insult directed at me. It was on one of the forums I was reading, uh, talking about a newsreader who had been uh, criti- criticized for um, uh, making his feminist uh, inclinations really overt as opposed to just noticed by the crowd. Okay, thank you. Does anyone know the um, Sesame Street character, Cookie Monster? (laughs) I know many of those. (laughs) (laughs) Please, thank them once again. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to introduce Anjali Roberts. Anjali is the coordinator of uh, Mashrabiya, A Glimpse into Sacred Art and Architecture, uh, a project run uh, at um, uh, Bankstown Art Centre. Now, uh, the project was run recently across Sydney through BIDS, the Bankstown Youth Service Development Services, in partnership with the University of Sydney, the New South Wales Architects Registration Board, Penrith City Council and Canterbury Bankstown Council and the Institute of Architects. It's a fantastic exhibition and uh, Anjali has done so much important work in the community and I think it's really important that we uh, celebrate all the um, success and all the, contribu- the contributions that you've made. So um, I'll leave it to you to show a short film but would you like to say something to introduce first? Thank you. Thank you, Omid. So I'm just going to give some context about how this panel is happening and why um, and also a little bit about the community aspect of this. So um, Mashrabia came about because it was funded, it was an exploration in, into sacred spaces in our environment, particularly the design of mosques, and it was funded by the Council of Arab-Australian Relations, um, as Omid mentioned, in partnership with those organisations. Now we explored these two areas, Bankstown and Penrith, and we looked, the context is very different. So in Penrith you have uh, 5% Islamic population. In Bankstown, it's about 35%. Um, And in exploring the design of sacred spaces, we took quite different approaches. Um, We worked with three artists, Willerai Kirkbride, an Aboriginal Wiradjuri woman in uh, Penrith, and we worked with the Mohammedi Welfare Association. In Bankstown, we worked with two artists, and one architect, Pamela Maldonado and Hussein Nabil, to work with uh, students of Sir Joseph Banks High School, a group of women, mostly Muslim, uh, to, to actually explore with Bankstown Council what a public space might be, might be designed like if it was to include a, a prayer space. Um, so I just want to show you the, the film and a lot of the things that you both touched on actually arose and we can explore that in the context of these two communities both in Sydney. In this time that we live in, things pertaining to um, faith and sanctity are receiving a bit of a hammering. So, um, you know, we were really, really glad and, and happy to be exploring Islamic architecture with our local community. The Arabic word mashrabiya refers to a screen which is an architectural feature on buildings, particularly in hot desert climates, to shield from the sun while still allowing cool air to enter and circulate. Taking this idea as a starting point, 
The Mashrabeya project has been about offering a glimpse into sacred spaces in Australia and around the world. The project aimed to use art to show what places of gathering and sanctity mean to communities. Presented as part of Mashrabeya, the Building Faith Lecture Series brought together architects, artists and researchers to discuss sacred architecture and its importance to the community. The reason I got interested in Islamic architecture is I travelled as, as a young man and I'd been educated in, in the Western European tradition. And suddenly I was confronted by an architect that I honestly didn't understand. And so I spent some time trying to understand it. And the mosque probably is the most important and, and fundamental of public spaces in, uh, in Islam. It's trying to take people from that busy uh, secular world into a contemplative world for prayer. Many of the places that people gather are not purpose-built facilities. And the things that we've learned is that, that the small places and the large, fancy, beautiful mosque are both really important. I think the, the interesting debate is whether or not those spaces can't be shared, and I think they can. The Muhammadi Welfare Association, a group of Urdu-speaking Muslims, opened their doors to students from the Nepean Art and Design Centre to create a special exhibition of photography and drawings for Penrith Library. When people ask us what's so special about our community centre, we often answer the question by explaining and highlighting the strengths of the Muhammadi Welfare Association, its diverse multicultural connections and its huge acceptance of everyone with open heart and arms. We were very lucky to be welcomed into a centre where, where everyone was so lovely and welcoming and we worked with some older kids and some younger kids. We said to them, think about what your favourite thing about the centre is and then we gave them each cameras and they went around and photographed each other. Celebrating our diversity through projects like the Mashrabiya exhibition is a way of creating a kind of virtual Mashrabiya for our community, one that excludes harmful misconceptions and includes pathways for tolerance and for understanding. Pamela Maldonaldo and Hussein Nabil worked with students from Sir Joseph Banks High School to create artworks and architectural designs that explored what inclusive sacred spaces could look like. We took design principles from the spaces that they thought um, they loved. I created this artwork by starting off with a sketch um, with a place that I feel comfortable in and it was actually just a sketch of a chair in a park with a tree and um, I ended up designing this. Then the second stage we got them to think about inclusive spaces to kind of influence what they think about sacred spaces. And I wish we did that more in society, like had, had spaces where we could learn about each other. I think everyone associated with this has come away just going, whoa, <laughs> how, how did those kids do that? Amazing work and, and, it, and, it, and it's not rocket science. You bring really good artists to work with young people and you, you give them the freedom to explore their ideas and then, you know, you, you, get, you get works like this. I was never good at art and I never picked it as a subject but I got to try something different with a nice group of people. So this is a fantastic event because it really showcases where Sydney can be in the future and the inclusiveness of Sydney. I think that's, that's the message of this project that if, you could just, if we can all just imagine the next step, um, 
it could happen. So this is my little dream. up with and has been has talked about are very similar to what the girls actually came up with and so it's really interesting that at both levels that that, that that's come out thank you one more round of applause please <laughs> I just want to congratulate you one more time and um, uh, encourage you to continue all this important work that you're doing and it's really a privilege for us as academics to be working with people in the community like you. So thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I think one of the things that you mentioned uh, in, in the video was imagination, imagining new spaces. And I think that's one of the things that I think we should all uh, draw from or, um, uh, or uh, work with in terms of what's been discussed here today and that's imagining new narratives, new discourses, new ways of, of being and engaging and uh, new ways of expressing spirituality um, and uh, being uh, citizens in, uh, in, in connection with each other and with different traditions. So imagination for me I think is an important, important way to uh, encapsulate what's, what's been discussed today. I'm going to ask all three of you to come to the front because we're going to open up for questions. Uh, thanks, Sam. That was a great talk on the architecture of uh, the mosque. Um, I'm, my my be best recollection is one in Perth, the Perth Mosque. And, um, yeah, so that's a 1904 Afghan um, sort of influence um, one as well. And I've re noticed recently, the last two years, I've actually had the... Um, the business next door is actually taken in the Moorish design. So it's actually a brand new building. So I was just wondering in terms of it, um, do you think there is other, is there other cases like that around Australia? And is this going to be a general thing where the architecture of mosques as Muslims, Australians may become more integrated into the business community, into the retail community? Are we going to see the mosque architecture to be influenced into other segments of the local area? That's a really good question because I noticed that along the street uh, where the Adelaide Mosque was when I was there a few weeks ago, uh, there's a number of antique shops and restaurants that are, again, a sort of Middle Eastern focus in the aesthetics and the range of things on display. So I think this is a really good point because also businesses move and change their spaces far faster than religious edifices throughout history. So where I actually look for a barometer of contemporary Australian style are restaurants. And it's a matter of walking into the space and thinking, yeah, this feels like a contemporary Australian space. They're dealing with a kind of Australiana. Are they doing it in a cliched manner or is it subtle and sophisticated and contemporary? And I find this idea of looking at where we go with um, uh, what might be very broadly called Islamic heritage through food, so by that I mean the expanded global field, 
um, by looking at restaurant designs and such, we start seeing this idea of evoking a place which is other than Australian. So when you find businesses that call themselves a fusion of contemporary Australian Lebanese, for example, um, that's where I really start seeing this shaping taking place. To the extent that mosques can drive this change, I don't think there's much potential there, but there certainly is a way of seeing this architectural genre emerging faster in those sectors. So thanks for the question. Any thoughts there as well? Yeah. No, good. Uh, when the girls at Sir Joseph Banks designed some of these spaces as public spaces, one of the groups of girls actually designed it for Big W. So um, the the space was designed as a as an opportunity to not not have to use the fitting rooms in Big W. So that may be one way that Woolworths can save its flailing Big W chain. It's funny because when you asked the question, I was thinking of food, really, um, not because it's dinner time, but uh, but because we're so welcoming of other cultures' food, you know, and we kind of incorporate them into our food, and we try to, you know, and 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 architecture and art really could do that if we opened up our minds to, and you know, allowed ourselves to incorporate things, because because they're actually good, you know, like the same way you like zaza because it's good, you know, you can like the Arabic design because it's good and then want to bring it more into just your banks and your you know your big w's because they're nice to look at you know just as good food is good to eat you you eat it yeah very much so hi uh it's very interesting for me the video for the inclusive spaces i come from indonesia where we're a muslim majority and um it's actually taken for granted in Indonesia that in malls you'd have places for prayer. In schools you'll have places of prayers. For sure in offices you have places uh, for prayer. Um, so I think like one of the other avenues that you can look at is how these inclusive spaces exist in Muslim-majority countries where these um, things are taken for granted. So it, it's, it's not really a question, but I'm just curious about your take on that. When we first proposed this project, it wasn't necessarily a mosque space. It was a space for contemplation in our busy environments. Um, so definitely, in, I mean, if you venture into a mall, I think you probably need some respite. <laughs> so it's, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, in that sense, there's a way to make them Australian, you know, to fit the Australian's mentality of, you know, under, understanding that meditation or, or taking time out during your day is important for your general well-being and pitching it that way, but making it inclusive to Muslims to use as prayer spaces as well as other religions to use or, or atheists to use as just kind of time out spaces would, would work. That's what they have in the Singapore airport. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember... Um, reading in advance of this lecture about the Irish experience of designing mosques. The article was titled The Mosque Over the Shop in terms of the sort of hidden discrete space on the main streets. Um, and also on people's Facebook feeds, I would get tagged in posts with a photograph of the entranceway to a prayer space in an airport saying, Sam, if I go in here, what do I have to do? And it's like, can I go in here at all? So there's certainly a lot of question around this, which is, I think is really quite interesting to see about this anxiety of what do I do with this space so I'm not part of this tradition and don't really know how to use it. I just said, pop your head and take your shoes off first and see what's in there. You won't find very much. It's a quiet interior space, but now you'll know what it's like. 
So yeah, very important thing. One of the things I do at the beginning of my Islamic art class is actually ask my students to listen to an adhan that was recorded in Australia over the Grand Pace National Park in um, Australia. It's a very beautiful sound, of course, very appropriate sequence for it. But I do this because I want my students just to understand something they've probably never heard in full before as anything beyond a soundbite. So that's a starting point there. Um, there's been a new mosque approved for development up in the Hunter Valley at Buchanan and there was quite a bit of community opposition up there, unfortunately. Um, and I saw um, an artist's design for the mosque recently and it really doesn't have any obviously Islamic features. And I feel that the community probably tried to change the design a little bit so it wasn't overtly Islamic to placate the community. And I was just wondering if you think that Islamophobia and racism will have some influence on um, Islamic architecture in Australia. pressure look like and I'm wondering if this could be an answer to consider the design of mosques in the last 15 years that is designed and approved in the last 15 years and wondering what do they have in common. There used to be a time after all when references to Islamic heritage were playful, the area of Orientalism. You look at the 19th century, even in Australia we have mansions that are in the Moorish style and it's play and now we've gone to something very different but what do you think? I think as as we um, as we've listened to your talk, the, the 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 function of the mosque as a meeting space, as a learning space, as an advocacy space, and as a spiritual place is is the most important thing. So the the architecture is a, is a byproduct of that. So if that changes, so in Merkitz Mosque, that that extended concrete wall is like an arm. It's supposed to be an arm represented. The crescent moon is not obvious. It's, it's kind of implicit. If that changes, um, I think the work that we did in, in Penrith suggested that actually what we're trying to do is, is in a way open these spaces up so that people can feel that they're permeable and accessible and that we can have the, the dialogue that we need to have maybe sacrificing architecture but I think at the behest of social cohesion and, and, and that, yeah. Um, I, I think that, um, I think that anti-Muslim sentiment is rising and it's a problem, um, but I kind of am a little bit of a eternal optimist and, and I think that it might actually end up being a positive thing in a certain way for architecture because like you saw with the Newport Mosque, it's kind of pushing people to think outside of the box, outside of their usual minaret and dome, and encouraging them to think of an Australian Islam and an Australian Islamic architecture that represents a multi-ethnic community that's not particularly got the Ottoman style or the you know, Indian style. Uh, so I think that it's horrible that it's, you know, it happens in such a negative way, uh, but hopefully it might crack open some, you know, this kind of resistance to change and, and encourage people to, you know, design differently and things that are um, pleasant and respectful for everybody in the community.
general question about um, mosques and grandeur, perhaps. And it was interesting, the slide that, that Rima showed of the, the very early mosque in Medina, which was fairly simple in its statement and its, in its form, I suppose, um, and its number of different spaces. I mean, I think perhaps just as mosques that are simple make statements, I think mosques that are grand also make statements, but they make them in, perhaps in a different way. So uh, just the question about the influence then on architecture, um, I think to some extent, and I'm certainly not an expert by any means, but an observation um, is that sometimes the statements of grandeur or statements of simplicity are very contextual um, at different times and um, uh, as such perhaps what we might see as a more simpler style or a different style of mosque architecture in Australia is perhaps in part at least, not totally, but in part at least a contextual statement as well. Um, so the observations of, of, of the panel on that, um, that comment. Thank you for a very perceptive question. This is something that my students consistently raise, is why we talk about these really beautiful, spectacular mosques from overseas, where we find them in Australia, and they talk about the Auburn Gallipoli Mosque as the closest thing we have to that narrative. Um, with grandeur, I find that a lot of this has to do with the context of international relations at the time these were built, where you're using the mosque as a forum for competitive display. Remember the old world expositions, except in a single building structure. And part of this, uh, I think, is really well summarized with the Ottoman traveling tents, which were quite literally mobile palaces, where you would uh, lay siege to a city, surround them with your tents accordingly. You'd have one particularly spectacular tent, embroidered even with precious materials, um, evocative of the spaces back in Topkapi, etc. And you'd invite your representatives from the city in to speak to you within the tent and be surrounded by the extraordinary luxury to reinforce the fact that this army is here to stay and is very well funded. So this is part of a spectacular in those cases. And I think, yeah, this is a really important thing about Australian mosques, is that Australia, I think, in general, and this is a broad generalisation, doesn't really go in for the spectacular. The two buildings which I think most people would nominate as internationally famous buildings in Australia are a piece of traffic infrastructure and a performing arts space. They are spectacular, but one was not really Australian. It's made by a Danish architect, after all. So when we're thinking about that interaction of the non-spectacular, that's a really important part of what I think makes Australian mosques Australian. Last question, please. Uh, thank you for your talk, Reem. Um, this question is um, kind of directed at you. Um, my question is, in your experience with um, kind of attending the different mosques uh, throughout Australia, um, where have you come across spaces that are inclusive of women? Um, for me personally, I find it very difficult to come across spaces where women are included, um, especially in, in that discussion you mentioned, um, where you know where we're not just reducing it down to um, religious questions, you know, um, but more so um, questions regarding the community, what's happening, um, how to engage with the political activity that's going on. Um, yeah, for, for, for myself personally, it's something difficult um, to access that. Um, so in your experience, what, um, what are some places that you would recommend that are inclusive of women? Um, and how, how did you go about finding those places? Uh, yeah. 
Um, I didn't, so I'm working on creating it, uh, is the short answer. I don't think they really exist that well. I mean, I think the, in Melbourne, because I'm based in Melbourne, the Albanian mosque has probably the best reputation among women. The Bosnian mosque as well is all right, like in terms of their inclusivity, uh, but still segregated and, and still quite, you know, you're not really meant to be there, you know, like you're kind of an inconvenience, but we'll put up with you attitude. But um, And I think that a lot of women come to MPV for that reason. And we have, uh, so we run Quran discussion groups and, and, uh, and Tarawih prayers and stuff and find, you know, spaces that as a community we can, um, uh, we can get together and, and really share. Um, and really, I think it's a shame because women's insight into religious matters is, in, is you know, and community matters uh, are really um, thoughtful. And, you know, and their community is missing on a huge resource by dismissing women from these conversations. Um, so MPV is working towards having ideally a permanent structure, and ideally in every single state, which will be an inclusive mosque and which will allow for that space and where we will run discussions around, you know, advocating for freedom of expression in, even in Muslim-majority countries. You know, we see things like Raif Badawi and other people in prison for apostasy laws and blasphemy laws, and we all know as Muslims this is not okay, you know, and we ha but we have no platform from which to stand and to advocate for change um, and to say, you know, that these things need to be addressed and that, you know, the, even the interpretations of Islam that, that people are hiding behind in order to justify these things need to be addressed. Um, and that's kind of the issue with, you know, keeping it just in religious discourse as well because we are, as a community um, and as Muslims, live under Muslim, you know, values and so, and, and Muslim laws in that sense, even within our community. And if we can't discuss these things and discuss interpretations and, and stuff, then we end up, you know, just being dictated to around what to do and what not to do. Um, so yes, sorry, I can't. <laughs> I wish I could. Uh, but we do have an MPV group in Sydney, and they do meet regularly, and I'll give you the details, and you can catch up with them, because they're going to be working towards uh, having a, like an inclusive mosque initiative or something like that here, and, uh, and then they can keep you informed. I think you'll all agree with me that that was um, uh, both educative, uh, informative, uh, and enlightening. And I just want to thank all of you, Anjali, Reem, and Sam, for... Uh, taking part in this seminar and I hope it's not the last time that we have this discussion and uh, let's uh, build on some of these really important themes and uh, incorporate a lot more voices in, in this discussion. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Sydney Ideas, especially Meredith, who has always been a great supporter of these kinds of events and has been uh, amazingly open-minded and, uh, uh, and really important for uh, introducing these kinds of discussions uh, between community members and academics. So we really need to thank you for continuing your support.